three, two, one. Hey everybody, welcome to System of Soul. Chris White and Benj Miller coming at you today. And uh, we're excited. We have a returning guest, uh, John Ritchie. He's the owner-founder of Venture, and he is he has spent the last 15 years under yep. the radar, no website, but is a very highly sought-after executive coach. John, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, one of our uh, most listened to, most talked about episodes. So um, it's really fun to uh, to have you back. Um, I no thought, pressure, no pressure to deliver again, John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's let's start off with some fun. So I have in my hand a a book called Richieisms, oh, inspiring wow. words of wisdom from the man, the myth, the legend, John Ritchie, and so. If you're around John for a little while, you know he is full of one-liners that are mostly hilarious, but have a pretty substantial depth to them. So let's see if uh, let's see if we can grab a few, and just I'm going to put you on the spot and have you talk to him. Um, all right, here we go. There is a fine distinction between a groove and a rut. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, people get into feeling that they're, they, I used to say people mistake the rim of the rut for the horizon. They get settled into a groove and they think this is really easy and it's, and grooves have a way of turning into ruts. A groove facilitates your forward motion and a rut restricts your ability to adapt. Grooves help you move, ruts keep you from moving. Interesting. All right. And the difference between between those can be subtle. Yeah, the, the hard part's knowing which one you're in, right? Yep. Yep. If you want the steak, you have to let go of the bone. Yeah, we hold on to things long after we ought to let go of them. You know, think about a dog. He's gnawing on the bone. What he really wants is he wants the steak. All right. This one might be too deep for this podcast, but we'll find out. There is a shame that triggers the lie that releases the mole. People often have, and I would say almost invariably have, a core shame, a belief in deep inside of them that may be unnamed to which they have attached lies, falsehoods of ways of coping with that shame that have released behaviors that are externally observable that I call them, that we, in this quote, we call the mole. And those moles are, you know, everything from lying, cheating, you know, all kinds of behaviors, but they have their root and things that are much deeper and usually in that core shame. Hey, podcast listeners, Chris White here. I wanna challenge you with something today. Now this might sting a little bit. You ready? All right, here it is. Are you limiting your capacity as a leader? 
We know you're experienced in the world of business, entrepreneurship, and leadership development. We know you're smart, intentional, business-savvy folks. But are you playing too small? One of the greatest steps you can take after years of leaving a company or organization is to become a coach for other businesses. I've been a business coach for over 20 years after a 20-year corporate career, and I'm here to tell you, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. It is the most rewarding and gratifying thing that I have ever done in my career. And this is also why Benj Miller and I created System and Soul. We're training coaches right now to help small businesses everywhere experience breakthrough in both the system and the soul side of their business. If you're ready to expand your capacity and create impact like never before, then let's go. Get on my calendar, let's book a call, and I'm happy to introduce you to System and Soul. For more information, visit systemandthesoul.com forward slash coach and set up your phone call today. What what is what does that mean for people who are leading other people? Means that you have to do your interior work well before you're going to be able to lead them. So much there. Um, that that's uh, Chris and I spend a lot of time talking about the truth well, of that. Yeah, and you know that's um, you know our good friend John Ott. Uh, at exceptional leadership, you know, he talks to us. They, they, uh, him and his group wrote a book, and they did some research, and they they interviewed thousands of CEOs, um, and they simply asked, you know, what are the two attributes that make a great leader? And one of those attributes, John, was inwardly sound. Yes. Yeah. So I could play this game all day. This, this, <laughs> this book goes on and on and on. Maybe we'll get to some at the end. Uh, let's, let's pull back out for a second. Uh, John, you work with, I don't know, 30 some uh, business leaders, owners, CEOs. Give us the macro on, you know, we're coming to, we're in Q4 2021. What are you seeing? What are you sensing? Are there any themes either in the marketplace or, the issues that people are wrestling with that are maybe different now than historically? It is a strange bifurcation. Um, And I think a tale of two cities begins with, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And it feels a bit like that in some ways. Uh, What everybody's talking about is a phenomenon I call the great resignation. There is missing from our workforce some number between about seven and 15 million people. And nobody quite knows why they're missing, but everybody is experiencing shortage of staff. They're raising their rates, they're paying more money, and they simply cannot find the people they need to make their business work. And I I see almost nobody who is immune to that. Um, And it is, and it's just a conversation that we have with everybody is the, is the great resignation is how, how long is this going to be? Is this going to be, you know, three months, six months, 12 months, two years. Is this a permanent change in the workforce that we'll be talking about? five years from now. I don't think anybody knows. I had a a buddy of mine, 
I'll keep him anonymous, but he's been on this podcast. We were talking last week and they've hired a hundred people this year. And for the exact same positions, they're spending about $50,000 more per person now than they did in January. That is a giant number. Well, yes. and, and how, like, I, I, I have an example, um, I'll, I'll leave the names anonymous, but the, the a entry-level employee with um, some technical training, uh, it's a medical environment. And uh, she called me the other day, Th- this employee went to HR and pretty much demanded to be raised from $14 an hour to 25. Now this particular function in the company is when you fill it, you want to hold on to the people. It's very hard. And so they, 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 they pay, they, they, they pumped them up to 25. Okay. We don't know when all this is going to, there is no normal to go back to. It's just the new normal. Right. But, yep. but how, what do you, how do you, you can't go, you can't roll that back. Right. Now, the one thing you can never do in life is go back because back doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's gone. It's history. Yeah. The people that are sitting around waiting for 2019 to come back are going to be really frustrated. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So in the, in the waiting, what is the wisdom? Because we, we, as, as leaders, we can't wait. We've either got to pony up the 50,000 and adjust our whole business model, right? Or double from 14 to 25. And that, that affects, you know, it can have trickle down effects the whole way through the business. Um, or we can try and wait it out. Like what, what is the wisdom for the now? You know, one of my favorite sayings is the market decides. You have to react to the market. And when you see prices changing, you need to adapt to that. We have lived in an environment for 20 years of relatively low inflation. It seems like we're going to go back to an environment of much higher inflation. Uh, A season like this where you have these prices, like the example Chris gave, there's a realignment of relative value happening among employees as well as with employees in general. And that realignment is going to survive the end of the great resignation. And you, you simply have to move forward and navigate and let the market direct you. Um, so I don't see it, I don't see it ending quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we are in a really hot season and uh, I, I wouldn't worry about realign, you know, changing it until markets change. Uh, I was talking to a guy the other day, and in, in, they raised a class of analysts in a major bank from ninety thousand dollars to buck forty. All of them, mm. just to try to hold on to it. Yeah. Well, yeah. they don't know what's going to happen five years from now, but they'll figure it out five years from now. Not all, you know, what we would like to pose as a problem, not all of them are going to have solutions. Sometimes we're just going to have to deal with a fact. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> this, the intransigence of, of this vaccination problem is going to be a fact. 
Well, I, you know, I had another client call me. They, they have, uh, they're in five states. They're in the electrical uh, construction industry. And their, their largest client is about a third of their revenue. And that client sent a memo, any worker working on any project for our organization on any campus must have proof of vaccination. And this is a third of his revenue. And he's going, he literally just had to go to his workforce and say, who's vaccinated? Because only right. you, you can work. So I got to pull you. It's, a, it's just, they got to rearrange everything, right? Right. Um, and, and a smart business guy would say, how can I monetize that? Mm. Oh, I'm sorry. You have a new requirement for people being on your site. That's going to cost you an extra two bucks an hour. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 That's really well, smart. what recourse do they have? None. I mean, they None. made the rule. You created something that's outside of our contract. It creates additional costs for me. You need to pay that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 you know. Well, and what's really interesting is if you rewound two years ago, I, I guarantee, I don't know, I'm speaking totally above my pay grade here, but it's probably a HIPAA compliance issue for me to even ask my employees if they're vaccinated or not. We certainly would have been nervous about it. Okay. What else are you seeing, John? Uh, I think the third thing I'd observe is uh, I've never seen M&A activity at the level that I'm seeing right now. Mm. Uh, it's unbelievable how much money is out there. Uh, I've seen probably 10, I'm probably a quarter of the businesses that I work with have uh, had an ownership change since July of this year. Meaning like 25 or 30%. Yeah. 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 Wow. I counted them all up and it's like, wow, that is a huge number. Um, multiples are high, you know, the prices are higher. We used to look at uh, some of these businesses that I would have said five or six years ago would trade for five or six times earnings are trading for 14 times earnings. Sexy business, but there's a, you know, when there's a lot of money in the market, economics tells us that prices go up. And there is an immense amount of capital in the market and prices are skyrocketing. What does and that... All kinds of businesses are being bought. It, the other thing that's amazing is the mixed bag of businesses that are being bought. What do you mean? Why is that surprising? Well, it's everything from, you know, smaller businesses to much larger businesses um, recurring revenue, non-recurring revenue. Some of them you'd have looked at five years ago and said, man, I'm not sure there's any shareholder value in a business like that. Hmm. And somebody's standing in line with a checkbook right now. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore you have a lot of business owners that are saying, I need to at least go test the market. I need to go see uh, if somebody will buy and at what price. Yeah. 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 I had a day the other day where all three of the guys I saw one day had done a transaction or had been offered a transaction and declined it. 
Mm. Well, and it creates such an odd moment when you're, you know, working off a 10 year plan or something and you're four years in and you're like, well, what would actually happen? Like, what would I do if I did this transaction? I know that was true for a, a mutual friend of ours. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's this, there is a confluence of concern about capital gains rates. Yes. What will taxes look like next year? Well, nobody knows for sure. I mean, we don't know what taxes are going to look like next week. How can we predict what they'll yeah. look like next year? So, so that uncertainty, coupled with very large amount of money in the marketplace and public companies who have a driving need to grow. Right, they've got big valuations too, and they got to grow into the. They got to be sure they're keeping up with shareholder expectations for those valuations, so they're in an acquiring mode. Yeah. So that has created at least something I I haven't ever seen it this wide, this deep, this common. Even in the dot com boom, uh, it wasn't really? this wide. Huh. Yeah, it was very, it was very focused in the boom. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. John, I, I want to switch gears just a little bit. One of the things that you introduced to me and we have totally stolen and repurposed within System and Soul is this idea of commander's intent. And we we've used it because it creates such a great paradigm, both whether it's creating quarterly objectives or you know, there's a seat on an org chart and it exists for a reason. Going back to this idea of commander's intent has been so valuable, so clarifying and helpful. Will you, will you take us through that idea of commander's intent? Sure. Um, the military has always struggled with writing orders. How do I write orders for people and tell them what I want them to do? And it's very difficult to come up with a set of plans and you pass that out to a large number of people and rather famously, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And so the problem that they encountered was the chaos on the battlefield and all of a sudden the idea behind my orders has collapsed. I've written, you know, go here, take this hill, do it by this date. And all of a sudden that's irrelevant. And uh, a lot of historians go back to the uh, invasion of Normandy in June of uh, 1944. And the United States and its allies uh, decided to attack there in Normandy. And they had a big uh, airborne component to the attack. Nobody believed that the attack could be pulled off without glider troops and paratroopers dropping in behind the lines. So they trained all these people and what they were supposed to do and not just go take this crossroads or go seize this bridge, but our intent, which is to paralyze the Germans from moving their troops forward, to sow discord and confusion, to make it very difficult to reinforce the defenses at the beach. Well, the night of June 5th came along. And uh, as they say on the, on the uh, TV skits, chaos ensued. 
right? Uh, gliders went to the wrong place. Paratroopers were dropped tens of miles away from their location. Units were all mixed up. Uh, equipment was dropped separately from the troops. And at first in the evening, the Allied command believed it had, it was a catastrophe of the first order because they knew their people were all jumbled up. There were a few places where it worked just right, but overwhelmingly people were where they didn't need to be. But during the night, small groups of soldiers organized themselves into squads, into platoons, into companies, in some cases into regiment-sized operations, and set about not to do what they'd been told to do, but to fulfill the intent of what they were told to do. And by morning, it was very clear that a big victory had been won behind the lines as these people disrupted communication, prevented uh, second and third echelon troops from moving forward, seized key points and defended those key points, and sowed in general confusion and disruption behind the German lines. Commander's intent accomplished after months of effort won the day. And the initiative and independent action of all these soldiers. Was the planning a waste? Absolutely not. Every time you see commander's intent used to great effect, it happens with excellent planning. Somebody being really thorough. Occasionally, I'll hear a young business guy thinking about commander's intent as a way to short circuit his planning, and it doesn't work. Jim Mattis was the uh, eventually became Secretary of Defense, but in the Iraq War, he commanded the First Marine Division, part of the race to Baghdad, and uh, he modeled his attack. Uh, using a Lego piece for every vehicle in the division so that they would know exactly where every vehicle was supposed to go when the attack began. Their first effort was terrible. They found out that nobody understood what they were supposed to do. When they got in theater, they created a, a football-sized field, and it was a map of Iraq, and they put support troops and second, third echelon troops around the outside and showed how this attack needed to unfold. The planning was meticulous. Well, then the attack started. Or before the attack started, he issued a set of orders and he said, listen, we, I want us to get the Republican Guard on their heels and keep them there. At every moment when you are given a choice between speed and some other alternative, I want you to choose speed. I want to be inside of the enemy's decision loop. They should never have a chance to stop and assess where they are. They need to perpetually be reacting to what we just did. Great example of commander's intent. He gets out. He has one of his brigades is lagging and he relieved the man on the spot. You know, the whole thing here is to go fast. That's commander's intent. And the planning, you know, what do we say? Plans are nothing. Planning is everything. 
the plans themselves will likely be discarded very quickly. But the planning is what lets everybody know what they're supposed to do. A friend of ours always said, the, the thing we know about every plan we make is that it'll be wrong. Yes. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you don't do it. And, and people that try to not be, you know, when, when you're not planful, you haven't thought through all these obstacles. You end up um, kind of being chaotic. You end up fighting things you didn't need to fight. Mm. Um, the planning is what lets people work out the and then what's that they're going to encounter when they actually get mm. going. You know, John, I had a I had a real time experience with Commander's Intent last week. Um, I, I have a client, um, he's Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. Um, he's, the, he's the guy uh, behind Operation Pineapple, um, you know, helping uh, the people get out of uh, Cabal. And so anyway, we were wow. in session, we were in session and we were actually working on OKRs, right? Objectives and key results. And, and, and I brought up uh, using Commander's Intent to help us lay out a successful OKR. And, and, and the, you know, Scott just, you know, smile, he jumped up and he goes, Hey, can I have the whiteboard? And I said, yes, sir. Oh, can I have the whiteboard? You don't even have to ask. Right. So I throw him a marker and he's like, okay, check this out, Chris. He said, love commanders in tech. Here's a, here's a fast way to break it down. Four components. Number, and they got to go in this order, task, purpose, method, end state. Your task is your what. Your purpose is your why. Your method is your how. And your end state is the outcome, successful outcome. And, you know, I just, he just wrote those, you know, one, two, three, four, task, purpose, method, end state. And it just pulled it all together. And so when I was listening to you talking, it, it just, it was amazing. And so those four little things, just everybody just got it right away. And we were, and it, it, it helped push us. And everybody's like, well, I'm going to go write mine. <laughs> right. But if I understand it correctly, the how may change, right? The how is the first to go. Yeah, it's a great plan to get punched in the face, right? So the, the, the soldiers landed like John, you know, whether it was, you know, parachuting in or whatever, uh, they got punched in the face right away because the how went to shit. Yeah, yeah. And the end, then they're, they're driven in that, in that example by the end state. Yes. It's those four things, by the way, are the four elements of a, set of orders in the American army. Yeah. Every officer is trained on those four things. Yeah. John, you, you have such great perspective. And I think it's because you spend the time doing the work of reflection. And I won't put you on the spot with your age, but one of the things I've heard you reflect on is your perspective of just our our journey as humans through the decades of our lives. We, we share that perspective. Sure. This is something that's just 
Um, it's observational for me. I think it's true. The people that I know, I don't think this is a universal truth, all people, all times kind of thing. But what I observe in the people that I work with is that our 20s are the peak of our strength. Most people will never be that strong again. And there's a lot of great things about the peak of your strength. I think our 30s are the peak of our stress. You know, the you're trying to get your career established. You're getting a family started. You're pulled in more directions that you could shake a stick over. You're junior enough in the world that other people are telling you what to do. And man, it is a, it is a decade of stress. Your 40s are a decade of possibilities. Um, you've been at it long enough, you're young enough, you could do something really different and you have time to make it a success or you have time to recover if it isn't a success. You can really color outside the lines when you're in your 40s. And the, you, know, you have a lot of options available to you. Some people are paralyzed by those options and some people are uh, excited by that. I think your 50s are the peak of your power. When you get into your 50s, you know how to work all the knobs and dials. You, you, know, you know what's connected to what. Your network's big enough. You've been at this a long time. You're young enough to still be able to relate to the people in their 20s and 30s. Um, you have a little gravitas when things get tough. You know what's important, what's most important. You know what to let go. I think the 50-year-old is at the peak of his power. I think the 60-year-old is a decade of influence. We are not made to wield power forever. We should lay down power in, play, in favor of influence. Influence can accomplish things power never will. And in your 60s, you, uh, you have the opportunity to influence people by noticing them, by investing in them, by listening to them, by talking to them. Um, I think we underestimate what can get accomplished in the world by influence. Most of the big things in the world are indeed affected by influence. I think your 70s, and this is... Uh, I think when we first talked about it, I didn't know what the 70s would be, but I have decided that your 70s are a decade of loss. It's not a happy thing, but I think success in your 70s is driven by how you handle the rather inevitable losses. If you think about a 71-year-old man and a 79-year-old man, there's a big gap between those two people. We're going to lose people close to us. We're going to lose peers. And I think the ability to deal with these years gracefully and courageously uh, is the mark of successful people moving into their 70s. These losses are inevitable. They are coming this decade or later. And our ability to deal with that well is what our primary uh, work is about in our 70s. So 
each one, you look at people and I, you know, this guy in his 40s doesn't need to be worrying about what is waiting for him in his 70s. But I, but I do think that there's an opportunity for people to lay hold of this, this decade of opportunity. And, and for the people in their 30s, man, I just think having somebody telling, I understand, I know how hard this is. Mm, yeah. There's value just in that. Yeah. Well, I'm reminded of the, you know, Chris and I stole your idea um, of the, the creator cycle and put it in our book, the clarity field guide. But, you know, we talk about the, the doldrums and cocooning and all that, and, you know, the, just the power of knowing where you are and that where you are is okay. And it's where you need to be. And it's where you're supposed to be and having some res like just, just surrendering to that and being okay with that is pretty helpful. Yes. And, and, and be okay with not rushing past it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you're right. You have to, you just have to accept it and ride it. Um, there's no skipping, <laughs> no, no hopscotching. At the risk of making this episode longer than we normally do, and on topic with just being okay with where you are. I have been mulling over your idea of how we all have a personal control limit. Um, in fact, it's still on my whiteboard uh, because I'm, I'm still wrestling with it myself. And, I'm, you know, once you see something, you see it show up everywhere, right? So will you, will you share that with us? Well, you know, control limits come from uh, a manufacturing idea, right? We have a lower control limit on a process and an upper control limit on a process. But I think as humans, we kind of operate in that band too. Think about a, a kid that's uh, in school. And if his grades get below a certain point, he's going to go study and work harder. And if his grades start doing above a certain point, he goes, well, I'm not really an egghead. I'm just... This is the zone in which I operate. Well, we go through life and we sort of carry that same thinking with us. If things get bad enough, we'll take corrective action. If things get too good, we self-sabotage. Yeah. And that idea, that, that recognizing that we operate within an upper and lower control limits helps us because mentally we can adjust those control limits up so that we don't have an artificial ceiling. And so our floor becomes in a different place. Um, we start to recognize what's really possible. And the upper and lower control limits are a means by which we settle for less than. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I always, I always used to think it was foolish for like all the people that would, talk about like 10x let's 10x this and 10x that um and i would i would think about like okay you can think about 10x but why don't you just think about 2x what would it take to 2x because 2x is double where you are now it's pretty good right and then you can double again you know <laughs> but um i think that this idea of the upper control limit there is something that can be unlocked when we start to think about what is actually possible and, and maybe it has a better personal application than it does business application, because I still think that the, um, you know, 10X is a great idea in business, but if you, if you haven't uh, kind of mastered, you know, 
20% X, then maybe do that first. Um, but in our personal life, man, I've been seeing these upper control limits um, everywhere since you introduced that idea. And it really does change your perspective to, to not think incrementally, but think exponentially. Like what is actually different if I take this limit off? Um, so that, that's a fun challenge to leave everybody with today to, to sit there and ponder as we wrap up. John, always a pleasure. Do you have any you know, words of wisdom, advice, encouragement you want to leave? Uh, no, I always enjoy hanging out with you guys. It's always a fun conversation, and I appreciate you having me on. You know, the whole time we've been um, talking, um, I keep looking at the picture. Now, of course, our audience can't see it, but over John's left shoulder is, and this is, this is what I see. It might not be true, but this is how I envision it. So he's got this huge picture on his wall, and it, it, it's a huge river raft full of people, and there's a person in the center on the sticks. And I'm imagining John as the guy on the sticks amidst the chaos. Well, thank you. I love that. Uh, I just only wish that had been true, but uh, I was in the boat. <laughs> I, just, I just put you on the sticks because... That's what you do, man. You you shepherd yeah. all of us in the chaos. I love, and I love that word. I love that shepherd word. We should use it more. Yeah. He also loves the book. One of his favorite books is, what's it called? The Boys in the Boat? Boys in the Boat. Oh, epically good book. Epically good book. There you go. It's a book it, about the 19... Oh, 1936 American Olympic rowing team. Huh. Okay. We'll just leave it there as a teaser. You can go home All and right. think about your upper control limit. And if That's you want right. some good reading, boys in the boat. John, thanks. And uh, I'm sure that we'll see you once again in the future. Thanks, John. I look forward to it. Take care, bye. Bye-bye.